try as I may, I could never explain what I hear when you don't say Hello, everyone, and welcome to Intersections Matches Talk Radio, a show for people who resonate with Mahatma Gandhi's quote, learn like you're going to live forever, live like you're going to die tomorrow. This is Jess Bina, your host and the founder of Intersections Match, a global personalized matchmaking and coaching company for successful and commitment-minded singles. We're always on the lookout for empowering resources to support people in transforming their lives. To that end, I'm very excited to welcome to today's show, Steve Herz, author of the highly acclaimed Don't Take Yes for an Answer, using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results. President and founding partner of IF Management, an industry powerhouse that has represented and coached dozens of sports, media, and entertainment leaders over the course of nearly three decades, Steve's a frequent contributor on CNBC, CNN, and Court TV, as well as served as a guest lecturer at NYU School of Continuing Education. Welcome, Steve. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Jespina. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And having, let's jump right in, having packed your book with insider anecdotes from some of the most well-known leaders in sports, media, and entertainment who you've coached. would love to start by your sharing one of your favorite anecdotes with our listeners. Well, I guess I'll start off by saying it kind of leads into why I call my book Don't Take Yes for an Answer. It's, it's an anecdote okay. that comes right out of the very beginning where I'm in uh, law school and I'm almost done with my I'm, – I'm actually done with my second year of law school. I'm working for a big law firm in Manhattan. And the summer's about to end, and you find out if you're going to get a job offer after the summer. And the managing partner of the firm, Curtis Mully Prevost, takes me into his office and says that I'm not getting an offer, and I really have, do not have what he thinks is the right skills to become a lawyer, and I should not even finish law school. I should drop out. And um, certainly, wow. I was expecting a yes to the to the answer if I was going to get an offer and continue law school. I was at Vanderbilt at the time. Oh my! I know you went. Did your, okay. did your undergrad. And um, so it was a pretty big punch in the gut, you know, so, so to speak. But I respected this guy. His name is Turner Smith. And it, it was really the best advice I ever got from anyone. And I think it's really about trying to be able to look in the mirror or look at yourself if someone else is kind enough to point out something that seems very harsh or something that you could improve upon rather than just live in this, what I call an echo chamber of yes, where everyone tells you, what you want to hear and you kind of move along in your life and often don't reach anywhere close to your potential because of that, or you end up doing something that you're not really well suited for. So that, that, that was, uh, that was something that really changed the, the course of my life at 25. Thanks to the, the kind, the cruel kindness of, uh, it wasn't cruel at all, of course, but everyone always says you got to be cruel to be kind. So he certainly was kind. Wow. I'm so Echo chamber of yes. Actually, I, lo- I love that term. I might, I might adopt the echo chamber of yes. And I think that is 
so important because I know that we work with so many people who are really, they have yeses all around them. And it's being the one person who's like, well, hold on a second, right? And having you kind of check yourself, is it can be highly valuable, that kind of truth serum that can be far in between, right? Um, when someone reaches a certain level. So that is, that is fascinating. Is that what inspires you to write Don't Take Yes for an Answer? I think it was more certainly certainly that it was it was definitely part of that but it was also just you know I'm just making I've made a lot of observations in my life about other people about myself and I was able to see over the last 30 years you know kind of it's it's almost like a test tube of life you have kind of a you have you have a control group of people where you know there's one group of people that you observe around you and we all do this we see those people who are mm-hmm. really successful and kind of figure it out and do well and, and get to the top of the heap, so to speak. And then other people stagnate and they end up plateauing. Often the people that you think shouldn't be plateauing are the ones plateauing. And the other group that maybe shouldn't be going to the top uh, are the ones that are. And I, I asked myself if, if all these people seem very similar in many respects, because they were well-educated uh, motivated, they were hardworking, they showed up on time. Why was one group of people doing so well and the others weren't? And I thought that it really boiled down to this idea of one group was taking yes for an answer and the other one wasn't. And one group was setting themselves up to never look in the mirror, so to speak, to improve and find out what are the internal factors rather than the external factors that were holding them back instead of blaming things on everything outside of their own control because we all are going to be hit with things that are outside of our control, but that's not really the operative focus. It shouldn't be at least because you, you know, variables are variables. And if you can control what you can control, which sounds tautological, I know then at least you have a chance. And that was the inspiration for the book and the title. And then as we'll get into, I'm sure later in the podcast, the second part of why I wrote the book is because it was those people who not only had the ability to want to get better, but it was also those who made a better impression on others in the aggregation of all the little impressions they had in their lives and how that added up to a greater mm-hmm. degree of success for them. Interesting. All right. I want to circle back then. Um, given, given what you just said, I want to circle back to the advice you got after, you know, after that summer, the, the, in your second year of law school. And tell me, when you received that, you know, at, at the time, right? Crushing, crushing the moment you received it. What, and this is again, speaking to clearly you are in the example of people who didn't, right? Didn't accept that plateau in terms of didn't plateau. So what was your choice point at that point in time when you, you know, maybe not the second you received that feedback, but, you know, short, you know, at some point thereafter that, that you think puts you on a different track in terms of, okay, I'm not, I'm not plateauing here. I'm actually, what, what was it for you? What was the choice point for you? Can you share with our listeners? Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, it wasn't immediate, but I went back to law school, went back yeah. to Nashville from New York okay. it, that, in that month All of right. August and went back to school for my last year. And I think my mindset okay. my, had focused, my, my mind had shifted. And I went from being a guy who was kind of on the same treadmill as most of the other students down there 
who are looking for mm-hmm. you know, legal-related jobs, whether it was going to be at a law firm or at the DA's office or in the public defender or trying to get a clerkship, all those aspirational goals that were in the four walls of being a lawyer, those went out the window for me. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking really outside the box of a lot of different things. I wrote um, some advertising copy and there was a guy in my a year below me in class. His father was an ad exec for uh, a big advertising agency, uh, Saatchi and Saatchi. And I, I, I put together an ad booklet to try to pitch myself as a copy editor, copywriter. I, I wow. started to work on um, getting involved. I, I thought about trying to get into the sports field and had worked at the University of Michigan where I went undergrad in, 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 in for the sports information directory department at Michigan and wrote for the school newspaper. Started to think about jobs in that space. Believe it or not, I had an idea for a, a fat-free potato chip that I kind of invented while in my last year of school. I, I was thinking very outside the box because I knew that <laughs> being a lawyer wasn't for me. This Turner Smith was right. My skills were not suited to sitting in an office and litigating uh, legal cases or, or, or writing contracts. It just wasn't. He said to me on that afternoon when he said, don't go back to law school, he said, you're a salesman. Do something in sales and come back here as a client. Build a business. And, and that really impacted me. So that my shift in thinking was complete, almost immediate. Wow. So that really caused you to tap into passions, right? Imagine sports and some of the other things you mentioned. Actually, you, you kind of you had to take a look at yourself and say, what am I? If it isn't sitting in an office or litigating, what is it that I could be passionate about that I could really put everything behind and, and you identified it? That is, that is inspiring. I have to ask, did you ever become a client of, um, of Mr. Smith, of Turner Smith? I just, I have to circle around and finish that story. <laughs> just cause yeah. You know, it's, I'm it's curious. funny. I, I didn't yeah. ever become a client. Uh, Curtis Millay okay. is a very, very good law firm and, and they have, very, you know, big time companies. I've always been a small business owner and frankly probably couldn't okay. afford uh, going, going to Curtis Millay. But funny, happy ending to the story is that Turner and I didn't see each other for 30 years. And uh, on the run up to this book, uh, when I got a galley copy from my publisher, Harper Collins, I sent a letter with a galley to Turner Smith, just thanking him. We had no communication all these years, thanking him and telling him that he was the inspiration for the book. And a lot of what good has happened in my life. And he was really touched by it. And he wrote me back an incredibly nice note. And before the pandemic happened, he took me to lunch at the Yale club where he's a graduate. And we reconnected 30 years later as if no time had gone by. And he was as great a guy as I remembered. That is amazing. That is amazing. And that was, I'm glad you circled around and and shared that, Steve, because I was, back in my head, I was like, okay, so when you became such a huge success, right, with the the company that you do run, did did you circle back to him and give him that thank you? So it sounds like not not quite then, but when you wrote this book, you closed the loop. So that's, that's really inspiring. Well, let me, now your book dive deep into what, and I know you mentioned first impression, your deep, your book dives deep into what you've identified, right, as three key communication traits, which people respond to most. And I know that Turner Smith said you were a great salesman, so I imagine, right, this is very connected with that, but tell us about what those three communication traits are. 
share with our listeners more about so, it. So I think it's, for me, you know, it's based on a study that I found unearthed when I started writing the book about how only 15% of your success is correlated and causally related to how good you are at the actual job that you do, technical parts of it, and the 85% comes down to non-technical things. And what I've identified is your authority. Do you come across, whether you are or you aren't, do you come across to other people as someone who knows what they're talking about? Do you come across with a level of confidence mm-hmm. that convinces the other person that you should be in a professional relationship with them? And I use the example of a dentist in the book who's great at his job technically, but communicates so poorly that mm-hmm. he doesn't have any authority around himself. So it's, you know, your voice, your body language, your presence, the way you dress, your physicality, lack of filler words, rate of speech, that all and many other things contribute to whether or not people think you do or don't have authority. That's one. The second trait is warmth. And it's really a synonym for trust. It's connection. And again, if you don't trust someone, if you don't feel connected to someone, you don't want to be in a relationship with them professionally or or Mm -hmm. personally for that matter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so I think that, that, that warmth is, are you making the other person feel acknowledged can they connect with you? Do they feel like they know you? Is there a sense of vulnerability to you? Um, and that all contributes to warmth, right? And many more things, again, in the book. Yeah. And then the last piece is is energy. And the question is, is are you the type of person that people want to be around? Do you have a magnetic quality about yourself? And if you do, great, then you're energizing other people. And if you don't, then often, not only aren't you energizing people, but you're deflating them and they want to get away from you. And you could have high energy and be very deflated, or you could actually have some relatively low energy about yourself, but it'd be actually energizing because you make people feel so welcome by being so welcoming to them. So that's the question I think people should be asking themselves. Do they have what I call awe, A, authority, W, warmth, E, energy? Awe. Okay, now let's go to let's go to warmth because like you said, right, warmth is so very um you know, very important in establishing that connection. And interesting, in a world where really a lot of, we're an interesting, you know, interesting point in the economy at this point. And, you know, there's an argument for a lot of things can be done by AI, by, right? By, um, and now I think one differentiator that cannot be done, right, by the AI is this warmth, this connection. So it seems so pivotal in terms of that. Share with us, if you would, um, Steve, we, I know there are a myriad of practical techniques that you have in your book with respect to helping somebody really, um, you know, fine tune their ability to convey warmth in their, in their personal, professional life, what have you. Can you share just one or two of those uh, many techniques that you have for our listeners so they can understand um, that, you know, that there could be a learning curve, but it's attainable for people. Can you share one of those? I could, but I don't really have to because you just did it. You did a really good job of it right there. So I would say that being interested in other people as you just were, following up with a question relative to something somebody else just said, as you just did by asking further details on warmth, by being emotionally committed to the conversation in your tone of voice and being sincerely interested and curious about someone else as you just did in the last 30 seconds. You just killed it. You nailed it. You did a great job of expressing the deep dive qualities 
of warmth. So that's those techniques that you just used. I would tell your listeners to follow your cue. Oh, that is, that is kind of you. And listeners, there are lots of technical techniques in this book. So go ahead and, um, you know, implement. And you know what? It's, it's a matter of like everything else. It's a matter of practice. So it's reading and looking at examples and Speaking of, actually, before, speaking of examples, what I would love to hear from Steve is any, there are many success stories and there are many stories and anecdotes in this book that really can help take a, take a skill and really amplify it, right? In understanding by seeing an example of someone actually implementing. So I would love, Steve, if you would share a favorite success story of, of one of your clients who, who implemented any one of the techniques with respect to warmth that you share. Do you mind if I don't use a client and I, I, I choose myself? Not at all. Uh, in this one particular. Oh, perfect. Uh, so, I so think one we're of the, one of the things that, sometimes, so <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. No, because one of the things that was really interesting about writing this book and, and doing a lot of research and interviewing a lot of different people is that I, I put a lot of people on tape. And my wife was really helpful okay. in terms of just listening to a lot of the stuff and watching me. And you learn along the way. Hey, by the way, I'm writing this book for other people, but actually I need it too, uh, because I have a lot of flaws here as well. And one of the flaws that came out was this bad habit that I had of folding my arms a lot when I'd be talking to people in a meeting or at a cocktail party or any birthday parties, whatever it might be. I just had this really bad habit mm-hmm. that I was not aware of, of folding my arms all the time when I would talk to people. And so she said that to me and I took that advice and implemented one of the techniques that I was using for other things for people, which is I started going to parties and whatever, and would be very aware of who else in the room had their arms folded. And by seeing someone Mm. else with their arms folded, Mm -hmm. I would stop folding my arms. And over time, relatively quickly, I stopped that habit. And what happened was, is I was giving off a really bad vibe to people because I'd be having this very closed down body language in front of them and by Mm -hmm. being able to implement the technique from the book and someone had pointed it out to me, which is also a key part of all this, I was able to exhibit a little bit more warmth in my own life. And, you know, that, that's just kind of a microcosm of, I think these little small changes we can make that can help us present better in the world. And really over time, remember I said it's an aggregation of small little impressions over time really have an impact on our, uh, on our trajectory. Absolutely. Okay, that that is really inspiring in terms of. Okay, there is a. Tell me, will you share with our listeners just just one technique? This energy, Steve. I think it's it's so very important in terms of reverberating, right? And it affects everyone you're dealing with. Um, so the energy that you're actually exuding and the impact it makes on everyone around you. So tell me, um, any, any favorite technique you can share with our listeners with respect to really helping them exude the kind of energy that will serve them well as well as really everyone, everyone around them? Sure. I, I think, actually, it has to do with a different kind of awe. It, it's not the acronym okay. awe in my book, but more the awe of life. I, I think you have to develop, internalize, a sense of awe for your existence in this world, to be honest with you. I think you have to have a sense of curiosity 
a sense of uh, really a desire, a deep desire to learn about other people and to learn about things that others can share with you. And I think there's an energy to be gotten from that. You know, if, if you aren't curious, really curiously interested in other people, in other things and what people have to share with you, then you're going to come to the table with a very blase attitude. attitude. Uh, there's going to be no awe in you. But if you have a sense of awe and you're awestruck by things and you really love learning, then, you know, you're able to really bring that energy to the table. And conversely, when you're the one doing the sharing, if you have something to share, obviously, like I do today, you have to feel a sense of awe that you learn something and that you're lucky enough to teach it to other people that it can help those. And I think I use some really good examples in the book of one is a professor who I had in law school, a guy named Barry Friedman who's now at NYU, who comes to the table as a law professor and teaches some of the most mundane, dry, almost boring, if you will, topics of criminal constitutional procedural law and federal courts and things that are really dry. And he's like, uh, the curtain goes up essentially when he teaches class and he just sucks you in to the passion and the curiosity and the interest and the feeling that he has. And he uses his body and he moves around the classroom and he heightens his voice and lowers his <laughs> voice. And he's yelling and then he's whispering and he's got you at the edge of your seat. Like every single class becomes a, uh, like a whodunit mystery series. You know what I mean? And he has this tremendous <laughs> sense of curiosity yeah. about the topic. And because of that, he's exuding energy in himself and he's exuding so much energy in the room and bringing out in other people. And I talked to him a lot about this book and a lot about him because he was, he had a big influence on me as did a lot of other professors. And it's just something that I think is very transferable from one medium to the other. It's not limited to talking in front of a hundred people. It's something you can do in front of a group of one. And, And by the way, just the last point, the guy seems to really enjoy his life. He's, he's happy. He's committed. And there's something really great about that. That energy brings to him a, a, a real joy in his life, I think. Absolutely. Like I, I tell people, that's the party you want to join, right? Somebody who, who exudes that. And, and I bet from another perspective, as he seems like, you know, a master teacher in that sense. And, you probably remember more about that particular, um, you know, core subject than than possibly some others. He made such an impact with it, and it's almost like even if you probably weren't that excited about the the subject matter, you became so. Would that be right? Or that's going to be my guess that you actually uh-huh. probably remember more th- about that that one. Yeah, go ahead. A, th- a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah. Look, here's the beauty of life, yeah. I think, if you allow yourself to have awe, the mm-hmm. other awe, you know, the, the sense of wonder, is that sure. everything, sure. Just, about, just about everything actually is interesting. You know, there are people out there who spend their entire life studying birds and find it fascinating. I don't know anything about birds, but I bet if you made me learn about birds, eventually I'd find it interesting. You know, there's probably a million things to learn about ornithology. Or there are people that study woodworking or every, there's thousands and thousands of crafts out there that people find really interesting. And I think if we allow ourselves to be curious about these things, that almost everything can bring energy to us if we have a sense of wonder about it. Absolutely. I say if you are bored on a date, you're probably being boring, right? If you just haven't found that, that, 
thing that lights the person across. And you don't even have to share that thing. You just need to take in that energy and connect at that level. So I love that you just said that. In fact, I'm going to dovetail, right? To happen to know you're a happily married man and it clearly your wife supported you with the, um, you know, I know you mentioned with the, with the taping and really bringing to your attention about, about the, the tweak that, that was so impactful for you in terms of the, the closed body language. So tell me as a happily married man, what insights might you share with our male listeners? Let's start with the males regarding applying awe in their partner search. Which, as well as maintaining a great relationship, right? Both in their search as well as maintaining that. How how can they well, apply the lessons in your book? Tell us about that. I think you already spoke to some of it, actually. But well, no, we're I, let you yeah, sure. I, like. Yeah, sure. I say a couple things. One, when I say the book is called "Don't Take Yes for an Answer," and I say try to seek out feedback from other people, I, I, mm-hmm. I think that what you really want to do is have what I would call, I said this other times, aggressive humility in your life. Hey, you're not perfect. There are things you could do better at. And by the way, if you're lucky, this will be for the rest of your life because you'll have an opportunity to get up every day and improve upon something. You know, nobody should ever think of themselves as a finished product. And if you have this level of aggressive humility about yourself and understand that you're not perfect, that you could be better, then I think your own mindset about yourself isn't so arrogant and you're not thinking that you're so perfect. And I think a lot of relationships don't work out or don't get off the ground, especially in the early stages, because we're too critical of other people and not critical enough of ourselves. And we see all these little flaws in someone else and not enough flaws in ourselves. And if we realize, you know, also what we're focusing on is ridiculous. You know, the flaws that we're thinking of that other people have, you know, kind of best exemplified in a lot of the Seinfeld episodes and curb your enthusiasm, that these are the wrong things to be focusing on. So I just think that Mm -hmm. mindset could help. And then the other thing is, to the extent that you're not winning over your audience of one on your dates or getting (laughs) Uh um, Uh I'd say again, again, look in the mirror. Uh, Do you come across with authority? Do do your dates take you seriously? Uh, Are you you a serious person uh, in terms of what you're communicating in that moment? Are you warm? Do you show a sense of vulnerability? Can people get to know you? Uh, look, every date is different. Every person's different. So it's hard to give kind of these blanket rules about these things. But, you know, just try to do the best you can to understand where and how you're not connecting with other people. And are you energizing someone across the table or, or not? And ask your friends, you know, look, I think you, if, if you're not having the kind of luck that you want to have or success you have, in that area, it, it's probably one of two things. I mean, either you're uh, not making the right impression, or you're you're overstating yourself, and and your your standards might be too high relative to your own imperfections. I love that. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not a matchmaker, but I'm trying to you know. No, you aren't. Sorry. But you know what? Here's the thing: because you do what you do. And because, and you, you seem to intuit how important feedback is, right? One of the key components of the matchmaking process is providing feedback. And so the kind, the nature of the feedback that you discuss in your book and you help people to take in, in, in a similar way that you took that yet years ago and to kind of, to take that feedback and create opportunity from it and 
course correct in a way that is highly impactful, right? It's empowering, actually. And so I think that I love the term aggressive humility. And really what that allows everyone to be is vulnerable, which, again, circles back to all of this. So it really comes full circle. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm hoping you're going to share with our listeners how. Now, I understand the book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer. It's not even available yet. Yes, it's in pre-release. So how can they, you know, can you share with them how they can pre-order a copy of it so they can start reading when it's published? Is it mid-June, right? Is it June 16th, published sure. by Harper Business? Yes. So, yeah. Yes, it is. It's, okay. it's, it's June 16th by Harper Business. Mm-hmm. And there's a very simple way they can do that. If they go on www.stevenherz.com, stevenherz.com, and okay. there's just one button that okay. you can pre-order it on a myriad of places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, obviously, you can go to your local bookstore and pre-order it. But um, they can also follow me on Twitter at stevenherz or on Instagram at steveherz 66 but if they just go to my website, stephenhurst.com, all those resources are there for them, and they can learn more about me, although they probably learn more than they want to know as of now. Um, and, and then we can, you know, hopefully engage them that way. And, and look, I, I do think, like you said, I, I think this book can, the reason I wrote it largely is because I think it offers something to other people, and I hope people get a benefit from it. It sounds like it could help in all different areas from professional to personal. And it is really fundamentals, right? Some really fundamental stuff that is, like you said, making those small tweaks for high impact. So which is we're all looking for, right? And I think you make really great points in that, look, we all can get a level of technical proficiency, right? If we can all get to that 15%, but wait a minute, what can we do to, you know, increase our efficacy with respect to that 85%, which is what really makes the difference, right? Between who's plateauing and who's not. So thank exactly. you, Steve. Really exactly. appreciate your, really appreciate your sharing your valuable insights with us. And I, listeners, in case you joined us late, I would like to share the show with people in your life. I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is intersectionsmatch.com. And appreciate your learning with us. Do email us with topics that you'd like to discuss in future shows. Be well, everyone. Take care.
try as I may, I could never. 